walk-up music is the best. All right. Hey, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Pastor Gabe. Uh, I noticed you hesitated at my name there at the, at the end, so we'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, welcome, everybody. Gosh, I am so glad that you're here. It is so much nicer to preach to faces. And to be honest with you, you could sit and scowl and you could go, no, that's not what he said. You could do all that and it'd still be better than preaching to the smiley face. Who are my, who are my movie buffs out there? They recognize why I call him Fred. Everybody recognize that? I am legend. <laughs> that's Fred. That's who I've been preaching to for the last eight weeks up until last week. And it is so great to have you guys here. Um, you know... We were in a series, I had somebody mention last service that um, many, many churches around the country are preaching very topically right now, and that's, it makes sense, preaching about what the Word says specifically, bless you, about, about COVID, preaching specifically what the Bible says about uh, racial tensions and, and things like that. And I, those are incredibly valid, but that's not necessarily who we've been called to be. God, in his infinite wisdom, knowing far more than, than we could ever in our power come up with, months ago gave me this heart and this vision to teach through the minor prophets. And that's what we're doing. It's called the Trey Asar, which is it's a Hebrew word for the 12. So the 12 minor prophets had so much to say about what's going on in the world, what was going on in the world then, and it's as applicable today as it was then. You look at the topics that they were dealing with, which was, you know, constant thread throughout all of humanity, idolatry and straying away from the Word of God and, and assimilating other cultures' values over or in addition to yours. And, and there were so many things that they were doing that are happening now treating those who were less than or who they perceived as less than, the, the poor and the oppressed, and, and just heaping on and treating them even worse, like they weren't even human beings. And we see that over and over and over again, and Jesus teaches over and over again on how we are to treat each other. We have the Word of God that says how we are to treat each other, and yet, at every possible turn... Humanity just takes a detour for some reason. It's like being shown the path, being given the instructions is not enough. We need somebody with a cattle prod on either side of that path to keep us from straying off the path. And we can see, we can look back through history, we can look today at what we reap when we stray off that path. It's like walking on a path, and to this side is a swamp full of alligators, and to this side is a ditch full of thorn bushes. We know that's not the way to go because we've been in there and we know you get bit or poked and it's not good. And yet, every now and then, is it okay now? It seems like we just keep trying again and again. This is why I think just knowing and understanding the Word of God is so important. Last week we talked, we talked about um, Nahum last week. And Nahum, really the whole point of that book, at least what, what God spoke to me, is how judgment and mercy are two parts of God's character that we can't separate. They are part of God's character. And you can't just say God is a God of love and mercy and ignore the fact that there is justice and there is judgment sometimes to be had. And unless we understand that, that there are two sides. God just can't turn a blind eye or maybe wink and pretend he didn't see it when we sin. Then we come to understand what a gift Jesus Christ gave for us. Because if we think that God is capable or willing to just turn a blind eye on our bad behavior, then you'd be tempted to think, well, why do I need Jesus? Jesus paid the price for us. And this chapter that we're going to talk about, or this book that we're going to talk about, Zephania today, is another one of those books like last week that is primarily about God's judgment. And it can seem really, really dark when you see the things that happen. We'll talk about this. 
But I want you to think about this as we talk. How thankful should we be that we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to pay the price for our sins so that we don't have to suffer the wrath of God? Because there is a wrath of God that accompanies his justice. And we can't just pretend like that doesn't exist. If you underappreciate the understanding of that, you will underappreciate the gift of Christ. And, and that's why we're teaching this way. We don't want to do that. So this weekend, again, Zephaniah, it's, it looks like Zephaniah. So if you want to call it Zephaniah or maybe just Z, you can call it Z. But we don't want to confuse it with Zechariah. So he could, he could be Z and Zechariah could be Zech. I mean, however you want to say it. But it's actually pronounced Zephaniah. I always give you kind of the Cliff's Notes version of what the book is. Not always, but I've been doing it lately. Here's the Cliff's Notes version of the book of Zephaniah. Decades of idolatrous and sinful behavior were the focus of God's wrath against Judah. Remember the southern kingdom of Judah. God's chosen people or not, there would be divine judgment and a penalty to be paid. An 11th hour repentance would only delay the inevitable for a time. Justice would be served. This is just another example of the desperate need for our intercessor in Jesus Christ who took our sins upon himself once and for all, sparing us from what we truly, truly deserve. So the rest of you, some of you at home, you guys can check out now. You can start checking Facebook. You can do whatever you want if that's all you want. But if you, want, if you really want to learn the depth and how cool and alive the word of God is, then stick with me. If you have your Bibles, grab it. If you're at home, grab your Bible. We're going to go over a bunch of scripture here. I'll read it to you, but it's always good. Zephaniah is only three chapters long. I really want to urge you to go through and read it for yourself because it is so, so rich. So let's do some background. First of all, on who Zephaniah was. Zephaniah is one of those prophets that we don't know an awful lot about him. What we do know about him primarily, we learn in the very first line of his book. So he prophesied in the 7th century B.C., okay, 7th century B.C., about the same time as Nahum that we taught on last week and Jeremiah, okay? Jeremiah was known as one of those big dog prophets, kind of like Isaiah, and had, had a name. They were, you know, you had, your, you had your big guys. And then he had a bunch of the minor prophets or others, and he was, at, he was prophesying at the same time. Again, to the southern kingdom of Judah, now, the northern kingdom of Israel really didn't exist. I mean, the land obviously did, but they were in captivity. They had been conquered, and they were in captivity right now, so there really wasn't much of a northern kingdom. And Assyria, who was, Assyria is kind of the bullies of the neighborhood. Assyria had been beaten up on just about everybody around for, since they first came into existence, but they had their own problems right now. They were struggling with the Babylonians. The Babylonians were coming in, and they were fighting with the Babylonians. And so the bully in the neighborhood didn't really have time to deal with the little guys over here and poke at them and torment them. He was more involved in his own battles. And so we find this little window of time where Judah can kind of, free from outside influence, can sort of seek their own path. And this is where we find ourselves. So the very first scripture here is Zephaniah 1.1. We got that on screen. <coughs> Excuse me. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. That's a lot of generations. In the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Okay, so if we just stop there. First of all, what do you notice? Four generations, going all the way back to great-grandfathers. Normally what we see in Scripture is that they'll talk about so-and-so, son of so-and-so. And that's really just to differentiate one Josiah from the other so that you know who you're talking about. This goes back four generations. That's got to be significant, right? You would think that it's got to be significant. Now, we don't know an awful lot, again, about these men, but here's some of the things that we do know. We do know... We can infer, that is, that there are probably a line of prophets, 
Okay, so Zephaniah was a prophet himself, probably came from a line of prophets. We kind of understand this from their names. Remember in Hebrew, names are much more than just, you know, I get a baby book of the top most popular names in my area. It, it means something. It means something about who you are, your destiny, who you're made to be. And Zephaniah means whom the Lord hid. Gedaliah means whom the Lord made great. Amariah means whom the Lord promised. And Hezekiah means whom the Lord strengthened. So these are all very godly names. They're names that call out a character of somebody who is pursuing the word of the Lord and pursuing God as as a very part of who they are. And so it probably leads us to believe maybe this was a line of prophets. Now you go back to Hezekiah, probably not King Hezekiah. We don't know that for sure. There are scholars who say it was absolutely King Hezekiah. There's no doubt. That's why the lineage goes all the way back there, to to tag him on to the greatness of, of who Hezekiah was. But there are some other scholars who say just the opposite, and they bring out little clues like, for instance, Hezekiah, the only son that's mentioned of King Hezekiah is who? Anybody remember? Manasseh. So Manasseh is the only son that's listed of King Hezekiah. doesn't mean that's the only son he had. It's just the only one that's, that's talked about in Scripture. It also doesn't say Hezekiah, king of Judah. Because if you're trying to glom onto his glory and say, this is why I'm a big deal because my ancestor was king of Judah, you would say, Hezekiah, king of Judah. I would. And if I would, then there's no reason why they wouldn't. Also, the timing. The timing is just pretty short to fit full, four full generations in the history that we see. Here's the thing, though. It's really not critical to the story. But some people believe it is. Some people believe it's not. Either way, moving on, what we do know is that Zephaniah had influence. He had the credentials to preach a word that was hard to hear in places that they didn't always get access to. Zephaniah did the majority of his prophesying inside the temple courts or inside of synagogues, whereas mostly or most of the prophets that we've talked about so far were relegated to street corners in the, in the square. They would stand on a street corner in the town square and just preach to whoever happened to be coming by. Some listened, some didn't. Zephaniah actually had access to places of influence, and he used that. So we know that he had some kind of of influence there. Now, the rest of that scripture, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, this is significant too, and it's a part of this story, although not specifically a part of this scripture here. Judah had had a succession of kings. I've used the term like a roller coaster of kings, some good, some bad, for generations, Let's go back, a handful of kings here. Let's go back to Isaiah and just talk a little bit about the the lineage of kings that led us up to where we are in real time here. Uzziah was a partly, you call him a partly wicked king. Remember, Uzziah is most famous for going into the temple saying, hey, I don't need you high priest to worship. I'm going to go in anyway. He fights with them. They're telling him not to go in. What happens? Remember when he goes into the temple anyway? He immediately is struck with leprosy and dies. Should have listened. Take that home with you. Should have listened. So partly wicked. He is kind of doing the right thing, but ultimately not so much. Then we go to the next king, Jotham, King Jotham. Good king overall. Nobody is perfect, but he did some good things. In fact, 2 Chronicles 27.2 says, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Isaiah had done. So Isaiah did do some good things. However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. He learned his lesson from his dad. But the people continued acting corruptly. So even with the influence of a good king, the people continued to act. It's hard to change habits. When the people as a nation start going down a road under the authority of a king, and then you try and rein him back in. These kings reigned for, you know, most of them a decade or more. Our president's got four years, or in some cases eight years, to try and turn a ship. 
That's an impossible job. Then we move on. Ahaz. Ahaz, just the name of it is kind of the epitome of, of an idolatrous and a wicked king. Ahaz. You can read 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28 if you want to hear about him. But he, it, he's a testament to, he's the poster child for a bad king. And then we go to Hezekiah. Okay, Hezekiah, by all accounts, a good king. 2 Chronicles 32, 30. By the way, read Chronicles and Kings. So good. So good. First and Second Chronicles, first and second Kings. All they what they really are is they're kind of a I don't know how to even say it, but a subtext to all these other ones. It explains what was going on and how kings were interacting. It really brings to life the whole picture of how everything is happening here. But Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 32.20. But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. So you remember that. They were, the enemy was at the gates. They were about to be conquered. And he prays with Isaiah. And what happens? Angel of the Lord comes down and smites the entire army that's against them, right? Definitely on God's side. But then, so you call him a good king. Then we go to Manasseh. Manasseh, absolutely no redeeming quality that I read about here in Scripture. 2 Kings 21.6, he made his own son pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. That is not the epitaph that I want written on my tombstone, right? But that's, that's how the word describes Manasseh, wicked and evil. And his son now, his son Ammon, who's the next king, was no better. In fact, he took what his dad had built and taught him and kind of improved on it in his own way. Second Chronicles 33, 22, he did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done. And Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. Which then brings us to the next one in the line that we'll talk about in a minute of King Josiah. King Josiah, very good king. But from the start to the finish of just the small snapshot that I showed you, it's only about 150 years. So in that time of 150 years, they had, they had a decade of good and a decade of idolatrous, sinful behavior, and a decade of reining it back in, and people, let's follow the Lord, and then a decade of, hey, anything goes, and then another decade of, hey, whatever that anything goes, let's do that even better. Let's, let's anything goes times two. And then you have another poor king who says, no, let's rein it back in and try and do the right thing. So you could see how the people would be confused. What do we do? Do we follow the world and all these previous kings or do we follow this new king who says, let's rein it back in? They were following the, the customs and the cultures of the world at the time. Blowing like the wind from one place to another. And it was confusing for them as it was confusing for the kings. But thankfully, God doesn't base his standards on what's going on in the world. Thankfully for us, God's standards are unchanging. And if we follow his word and his standard, we're not going to be confused on how to navigate this world. So now this brings us to good King Josiah. We can call him good King Josiah. Nobody's perfect, but Josiah was pretty good. Let me tell you a little bit about him. King Josiah took over for his dad, Ammon, at eight years old. He became king of Judah at eight years old. If you were an eight-year-old tasked with dealing with all this and, and being king of a nation, what's the first thing you'd do? I'd get some smart people around me, right? You'd surround yourself with some smart people. And that's exactly what he does. His mother, some different advisors, some people come around him, and they give him good wisdom. But his dad, Amon, from the time up until he was eight years old, really didn't have any time for him. Gave, gave him to some servants, some other people, and just said, raise my kid. I don't have time for him. You do, you do whatever you want with him. So it was kind of an absentee dad, we'd call him in his days. And Josiah was raised by a collection of other people. That's going to be significant. We'll talk about that in a minute. But 2 Kings 22.2 describes 
who Josiah is. He did right in the, sight of the, in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. His father David, that's figurative. We're talking about the lineage of David because we know his actual father was Ammon. So he grows, 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 learns more, and at 16 years old, okay, so he's been reigning for eight years, he has an epiphany. And he realizes how important God is in his life and how important God is in in the life and the culture of his nation. And he turns. He essentially right there starts a revival, this new renewed zeal for the things of God. And he starts, but it's it's a hardship to turn. So he's starting this. Needs godly advisors. One of the godly advisors that he turns to is a prophet named Zephaniah. Okay, and Zephaniah, the first thing Zephaniah does is deliver words from God that Josiah really didn't want to hear. And here's what he says. Zephaniah 1.4, we've got this on screen. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. That's who they've been worshiping primarily. And the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests If you were an idolatrous priest, you should take this seriously because it's about to turn really ugly for you. Now, Zephaniah continues. Zephaniah 1, verses 7 and 8. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. Here is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is something that they would have had to think about a little bit because the last time they really heard a lot about that was a couple hundred years ago when the prophet Joel brought it out, talking about the day of the Lord and what that was going to look like. But if they thought about it, the day of the Lord is going to be difficult for some people. That last part, I will punish the princes and king's sons and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. He's talking. He's not talking literally about princes and king's sons. He's talking about the, the, the nobles or the elite of the day. And the, and the elite of the day had actually started to glom on to the, to the customs and the characteristics and the behaviors and even the gods of the pagan nations around them. So Baal was huge. They were actually dressing. When it says clothed in the garments, it's, that's literal. They were starting to dress like even the nations around them, putting on their their garb, and and forsaking that which was their culture and their heritage. But that's not okay, and that's what they're talking about there. So the day of the Lord, again, has, we see in in time and time again in prophecy where you have a near-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. The near-term fulfillment of this was going to happen not too far in the future. That's when the Babylonians were going to conquer them, and it was going to be bad. The far the far-term or long-term fulfillment is when Jesus returns in the day of the Lord. And that's, that's what he's talking about there. Zephaniah 1, 14 to 16 reads like this. You can follow along or just listen to this. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, he's trying to say, I can picture him grabbing Josiah and just shaking his head. Like the day of the Lord, Remember? The day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. The day of wrath is that day. The day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. If you were a young Josiah and you're hearing this prophet say this to you, what's going in your heart right now? How can I change this? What can we do? Is it too late? Because it's so close you can hear it. But in that day, we hear it won't just be Judah that will be judged. God's people, nations everywhere will have to stand before the king. He actually goes on to detail this. Zephaniah 2.3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps 
you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Just perhaps. But you need to seek humility, seek righteousness. And this is humble of the earth. This isn't just Judah. This is all nations. He goes on to talk about in chapter 2 how Judah's enemies are going to be judged. Remember, Judah, they're surrounded 360 degrees by their enemies. And maybe you could say Israel wasn't their enemy, but they weren't even there anymore. Israel was occupied territory right now. He lists out Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, the Cherethites, Canaan, the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Ethiopia, Assyria, lists all of them. And in a nutshell, here's here's what he says that their fate is going to be. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits, a perpetual desolation, a place fit only for beasts, those who walk by will hiss and wave their hand in contempt. All these nations who are great right now and prosperous and think they're it, they're going to be reduced to nothing but a wasteland, so much so that nobody will even want to visit or look at it. There is judgment. Then, though, Zephaniah turns, and now he goes specifically to Judah, and he's laying out the sins of Judah, and he says, there is a price that must be paid. God's righteousness is just, and it has to be satisfied. Zephaniah 3, 1 through 4 says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instructions. She did not trust in the Lord. Does any parallel to the U.S. or other countries right now? Just think about it. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are like roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. I don't want that to be said about our nation. Not today or any day. Lord, help us. Zephaniah 3.8. It says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. He's talking about Armageddon. He's talking about that day. Would they have known? Would they have put the pieces together? I think not. I think it's another one of those scriptures that's in there for us to see. Now, these words, these even though these are hard things to hear, they ring true. They ring true. Now, the fact that this is a direct reference to um, the Great Tribulation was again it was two hundred years previous to that when Joel spoke them in Joel three one to two. If you want to look this up. For behold, in those days and at that time, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's where Armageddon happens. That I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, whom they have scattered throughout the nations and they divided up my land. Now these words are, they're penetrating the heart of young Josiah. He's hearing it and he's tearing his clothes and he is He is so forlorn that they have gone so far down this path. Is it even possible to recover at this point? Well, he thinks so. It's the 18th year now of Josiah's reign, so that makes him 26, right, if my math is right. He gathers money together and starts to refurbish the temple. The temple that had been defiled, they had set up altars to foreign gods to bail in there. They had set up tables for gambling and for parties. Basically, the sacred temple of God had become just this place to party and hang out. And he goes in with this massive refurbishment program to make it right. 2 Kings 22.4, we have this on screen. Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Okay, so this is going back. This is kind of a precedent for the idea of tithe to to keep up the temple. But that's another story for another day. He begins this major restoration project on the temple. Now, you ladies who took the Second Chronicles Bible study, you out there at home, you in here, 
This is all, a lot of this is going to be familiar to you. During the repairs, listen how cool this is. Up until this point, the word of God had mostly passed down by oral tradition. Okay? There were scrolls in existence. When it says the book, it's really a scroll. There were scrolls in existence, but not many people could lay hands on a scroll or read it or even have direct access to it. So a lot of it was oral tradition, what they had been told. So it's easy, if all you get is what you're told, it's easy to go, is that true? I don't know. Maybe we can soften that a little bit. Maybe we can get away with a little bit of straying. In the middle of all this, this restoration project, Hilkiah finds the scroll of the law hidden in the walls of the temple. It had been hidden there decades before to save it from destruction. And now in this restoration project, they find it. Some tradition says it's the whole Torah. Some says it's just the book of Deuteronomy. But here's one thing. Now, Scripture doesn't always tell us a lot of these details. Some of it we glean from Jewish tradition or from other historical sources. And here's what Jewish tradition says, that when Hilkiah took that scroll and showed it to Josiah, Josiah says, what, let me see. Let me see what's in it. Hilkiah opens it up, and the first Scripture that's right there, it opens right to, we would say it opened to that page, right, was Deuteronomy 11. 24 to 28. Listen, put yourself in Josiah's shoes and listen to how you'd feel if you heard this. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today. And the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. That, in a nutshell, is exactly what the nation of Judah had been doing. Exactly. And now it's more than just a good idea that you heard somebody say. Now it's the word of God, uncovered by by God's providence and shown to you. You can't deny it at that point. And he is absolutely bereft. What do I do? What do I do? What would you do if you're a young Josiah? You'd go, okay, I need another prophet now to tell me some direction. Give me the word of God. What do I do now that I know all this? Now, you might be tempted to go, okay, well, um, uh, Zephaniah is over here. Zephaniah already gave me those words. I'll go say, well, now that I have this, what? But he knows, just like we would. I know what he's going to tell me. He's going to say, yeah, that's what I was saying, and that's the reason why. So just like anybody, he's like, well, I'll get a second opinion. I'll get a second opinion, and I'll find somebody else. So as I said before, Jeremiah was the big dog prophet at the time. He would have gone to Jeremiah. History tells us, though, Jeremiah was in another part of the world then. He was unavailable. So what do you do? I need to get another word. And I know what Hilkiah, he's the priest. I know what he'll tell me. I need another word. I know what I'll do. Remember I said when Josiah was a kid, he was raised by some other people. He was raised by people who were actually servants in the king's court. One of these couples was a woman named Huldah and her husband. Okay, Huldah's husband was actually still employed in the king's court. His job at this time was to take care of the king's wardrobe. So it wasn't like any high guy. He was just a man. But his wife was named Huldah. And Huldah ran a school there for, uh, for women to instruct them in the word of the Lord. But Scripture tells us that she had received a gift of prophecy. And so she was known as a prophetess, one of actually seven prophetesses in Old Testament Scripture. Some really cool, powerful women. I'd love to teach a whole series just on that. So she's a prophetess, she's there, and her and her husband were one of these people who young Josiah was kind of pawned off on as a kid. He spent a lot of time with them in their very house, being taught and growing up to learn them. So Josiah probably thought, I'll go ask Huldah. Not only is she a prophetess with with some renown and some authority, but she likes me. She knows me. She'll probably give me a pretty good word. This is what he's hoping for. 
So he does this. He goes, 2 Kings 22, 13 says this. These are the instructions that he gave to, to the priest. Go, inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book. Do according to all that is written concerning us. So I know that he's hoping for, for a good word, some way out of, some pathway out of this dilemma they find themselves in. But Huldah, Huldah gives him the news that I know he didn't want to hear. 2 Kings 22, 16, 17. We have that one on. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place, and it shall not be quenched. Yike. That is not what you want to hear. I'm sure he was really hoping beyond hope that he would hear something a little bit more encouraging. There is some encouragement, and it comes in the next words for Josiah that Huldah gives him. This is 2 Kings 22, 18 to 20. I'll just read this to you, but listen to what she says. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, specific instructions for Josiah. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace." And your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. He's, he's saying through the prophetess, he's saying justice will be paid. The nation will pay for it. But because you specifically have repented, you're not going to see it happen. God's mercy, I'm going to take you away from this so you don't have to watch it happen. We see that actually fulfilled not long from there. Uh, the Egyptian king, Nico, they actually get in a battle with Judah, and, and um, Josiah is, is dealt a fatal wound there, dies very soon afterwards. Josiah, after hearing this, he intercedes for his people. 2 Kings 23, 1-3. Then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem, the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. Picture everybody's coming together. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. He brought the entire nation together and read the words of God to him, to them, to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. All the people heard the words of God and entered into this covenant. The outpouring of this is a great revival. They destroy all the pagan temples. Everywhere throughout the country, they burn all the idols to Baal. They continue, obviously, the work on the temple that they were doing. They killed all of the false priests. Remember it said they were going to be erased? Killed all of the false priests, even to the point of burning their bones. There's literally nothing left. Josiah reinstitutes Passover, which had been set aside for the longest time. People are rejoicing. Things seem like they're pretty good. Unfortunately, it's not enough to satisfy God's wrath. It's just not enough. 2 Kings 23 to 26, uh, 2 Kings 23, verse 26. However, the Lord did not turn from his fierceness of his wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because all the provocations which Manasseh had pro provoked him. So because of Manasseh going all the way back, it was too much of a provocation and there had to be a price paid. Later on, it wasn't, didn't take long. Judah and the temple would be destroyed by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar about 586 B.C. or so. So it wouldn't take long. 
So this might seem like a really harsh story if you look like, look, Josiah was a good king. As soon as he was old enough to know better, he changed. And he instituted changes. And the nation ultimately changed. But did they change because they were afraid of the penalty which they saw coming? Or was it a true heart change? I think God knows best. And there had to be a price paid. Church, this is why it is so important that we have Jesus as an intercessor. If you have never thought that Jesus was so important, look at stories like this. They didn't have Jesus as their intercessor. There was a price that had to be paid for their idolatry and for their sin. And in God's timing, sometimes that takes a generation or two for that to come around. But there is a price to be paid. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have him and his sacrifice on our behalf to take that sin and that judgment from us. Jesus' name is not mentioned in this at all. The day of the Lord is talked about, but there can be no greater scripture that points to the need for a savior than this. The sins of a nation, God is just. There is a price to be paid, and thank you, Jesus, for taking that price for us. Only when Jesus returns, the day of the Lord, when we see that being fulfilled and we see that coming, that's the only time that there will be true peace and restoration. The book of Zephaniah continues, just concludes this way. Zephaniah 3, 14, 15. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared your way, cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. God will fight your battles. Moving on, the very next a couple of verses, uh, Zephaniah 3:17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That word quiet, he will be quiet in his love, is a Hebrew word. It doesn't really translate in English. It's karash, and it means to hold in comfort like a baby. Like you hold a baby in your arms, and you're trying to comfort it and quiet that baby. That's that word. God will, he'll fight your battles and cradle you like a baby in his arms. I love that picture. The final battle is God's to fight, and the justice is his to exact. Zephaniah 3.19, Behold, I am going to deal at that time with your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth, restoring that which is lost. And these words from God are as applicable today as they were when they were first given. All nations, all peoples, all tribes will stand before God on that day and be judged. And at that point, more than ever, boy, will we be thankful that we have Christ. Amen? Because only then will there be true everlasting peace. We look at what's going on in the world right now. I want to show the last scripture for the day, I promise. Zephaniah 3.9, it's on screen. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. At that time and only at that time will there be true peace. This is why every single day I pray, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we have these examples that we can look back at what judgment looks like, at what the price that must be paid because of a just God, what that looks like. And Father, without that, we would not value the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Father, you gave that which you love the most in the world for us. Because you loved us. So, Father, let us not ever take a day for granted. Let us not ever look at the sin in our lives and say, ah, 
It's okay. Jesus gave me a do-over. Let us not minimize the gravity of that gift. Let everything that we do be a reflection of the price that was paid for us, that we could live in the freedom that we have now. Father God, we thank you for who you are, your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and and head up. If you guys grabbed your, your communion supplies, if you didn't, they're on the table back there. You can grab them. If you're at home, whatever you've got, if you got leftover pizza from last night and a diet soda, grab that. Whatever you have. I make light of it, but when we take communion together, it's not just a, hey, remember what Jesus did or remember who he is. By participating in communion, we are saying, yes, I align myself not only with your sacrifice, but the gift that you gave me. I accept that gift, and I accept the fact that acknowledging and receiving that gift has to change how I live my life. Not just that it can, but it has to. So if you accept that gift, take the bread. The body of Christ. And if you understand the sacrifice and the pain that he went through for you, for you who know him and for those who don't, for those who will know him and for those who will reject him, he gave it for all of us. And if you align yourself and are thankful for that sacrifice, take the blood. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And we praise you every day. Amen. Thank you, guys. Yeah.